Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petucci. And And this this is... The Science of Motherhood. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the podcast. I am your host, Dr. Renee White. My co-host, Dr. Mika Batucci, is currently on mat leave, enjoying the lovely baby snuggles with her second born. We are scientists and postpartum doulas who run the business Fill Your Cup in Melbourne, Australia, where we provide in-home care for newborn mamas and also a meal delivery service with postpartum specific food. But as our introduction has so eloquently stated, we are all about bridging the gap between research and our mamas, providing you with evidence-based research through interviewing academics, researchers, and people in the know. And today I have a very special guest, Anna Cusack. Anna is a postpartum doula as well. However, she's located in New South Wales. Anna is a motherhood revolutionist, an author, podcaster, blogger, and speaker. And she reaches thousands of women every year with evidence-based information and inspirational, actionable content, which just speaks to everything that we are at Fill Your Cup. Anna combines her knowledge in areas such as traditional postpartum care, breastfeeding support and exercise physiology to guide women through their transition to parenthood and early years of mothering. Her services in Newcastle include post-birth planning, in-home and online post-birth support and mentoring for mothers and the professionals who work with them. She also hosts her own podcast entitled Motherhood Made Magic, and she has just released her very first book, and that is something that we will be discussing in detail, how she came up with the idea for the book, the preparation and process of of writing it. Um, We also spoke about topics around her preparation for birth and how important it was for her to have a continuity of care uh, within the birth system and how she learnt to trust her body in that birthing process. So without further ado, please welcome Anna Cusack. Hello, Anna Cusack. Welcome to the podcast, The Science of Motherhood. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. It's going to be a great chat. I can feel it in my bones. I know. I'm so excited to have you on. And I know, God, talk about hashtag mum life. For all those listening at home, I think I've postponed this like two or three times. I'm so over sickness. It is like we are Fingers crossed, touching wood, all the rest of it. Um, The family is all well here in Melbourne now. We've been through quite a bit, thanks to childcare um, germs. But we are here today 
And for all those playing at home, Anna is working in the same industry as both Mika and I as a postpartum doula, but she has a bit of a different background. And you have just released your first book, Mama, You Are Not Broken. So as a way of introduction, you obviously are at a point in your life where you feel like this needs to be shouted from the rooftops and we agree with you. But do you want to talk about what was your life like pre-motherhood and how did you get to this spot? Yeah, um, it's an interesting kind of path that we all take. So I was working in a hospital in a in a rehab-specific kind of hospital setting and I'd done a whole lot of work in different health areas. So my background is in allied health, in exercise physiology, and I'd worked in private practice and I'd been a sole trader for a while and I had done a lot of community outreach programs with children and families. And then for a few years I found myself really specialising in like rehab for elderly people. And one thing that I really loved about working with that group was that they were just so appreciative of any support and advice that you gave. I often found with clients early and middle adulthood that there was perhaps a bit of like a, oh, what do you think you know? You're just a little blonde girl. Whereas it seemed like a really respectful space and I really enjoyed that. And I had an extended journey with fertility and infertility came off the pill at 20, early 20s, just because I'd never been an adult knowing what it was like to not be on the pill. And um, yeah, never again had a regular cycle and just was about to start fertility treatment basically when I completely fluked it, wow. <laughs> um, which is awesome because that was, you know, many, many years of chasing every remedy and traditional modality and, you know, being an exercise physiologist, there was always kind of the accusation that I must have an exercise or eating disorder and that was the cause of my amenorrhea. You know, I'm not underweight but I'm a slight build and that was always assumed to be a cause of my issues and I would be uh, given recommendations to see different, I don't know, dietitians or counsellors or whatever instead of being actually taken seriously. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, tried all of the Eastern things, tried all of the, did a lot of yoga meditation and things and, and toned down some impact activities. Like I was I was doing some things that were hard on my body, but I wasn't overtraining. So I toned down things like weights and running and pole dancing and, you know, hard stuff. Yeah. But that was never actually the problem in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, somehow fluked this baby and I knew it like I knew I know the date I'd know exactly when it was and I just was like yeah there's a baby growing inside me now and it's wonderful and it was wonderful I had a really lovely pregnancy so for a couple of my good friends who have just gone through HG which is like horrible horrible sickness Mm. I'm sorry that I took your nice part. We didn't just get like evened out, both of it, both of us being a bit good yeah. and a bit rubbish. I just got all the good part. And, yeah, during my pregnancy I spent a lot of time planning for not only for birth but also for what postpartum would be like. I'd had some bouts, I would say, previously 
of depression in my earlier life and I knew people very close to me who had had postnatal depression and I wanted to do whatever I could to avoid that situation. So I put a lot of work into you know, preparing that we had a deep freeze full of all postpartum specific foods. And I know food's kind of your yeah. your <laughs> That's our jam, jam as well. <laughs> but I found, you know, while I was pregnant, I went and read a lot of the things that you perhaps don't find until later. So I found Indian Ayurvedic cookbook for postpartum by Julia Jones. I found Heng U's The First 40 Days cookbook. I read through by Kimberly Ann Johnson's The Fourth Trimester. I read The Postnatal Depletion Cure before my baby arrived. Like I did all the steps so that I could be as prepared as possible and then actually did the things. And it helped that I went on mat leave at 36 weeks and that my baby went quite overdue. So I had a lot of time to fill this, like to do this stuff. So I did the fill the freezer. I made a roster of who could come and see me on which day while when my partner went back to work and just asked everyone. I said, I'm not very good at asking for help ahead of time. Can you just come for the first month that he's back at work? Because I'm going to struggle to ask you when the time comes. So can you just know that this is a standing request? And everybody came. It was great. And... You know, we got food delivery in order. We made signs for the door. We did all the things that we could possibly do. We went to breastfeeding class together. Um, I had all the numbers saved in case I needed something. I did the questionnaires on um, hand or about monitoring your mental health so that I could check myself afterwards. And then I just sunk into this beautiful little baby bliss bubble. And it was the best six weeks of my life. We only left the house twice. I I had her at home, so she and I didn't actually leave the house until she was 12 days old. And, yeah, I was just trapped in love and it was wonderful. And I have come to work more so into women's health and do training as a postpartum doula and in breastfeeding support. And more recently I did the Motherhood Studies Practitioner Certification with Dr Sophie Brock, which is looking at how motherhood works as a feature of society and within society so that I could really get a handle on all this stuff and help other mothers to experience that peace and joy that I experienced and see how it's possible in a modern context. I think a lot of people that I work alongside come to this work in response to a traumatic experience or a subpar experience and can then share their stories really vulnerably but I'm actually coming from another angle of like, I have felt how good this can be and I want it to be this good for everyone, which is all great, but it's not great to be able to go and provide some of these services if you have a Velcro baby that doesn't sleep and doesn't really want to leave you. Mm. I did attempt to go back to my hospital job a couple of days a week and that was right as sort of COVID started ramping up and it felt really unsafe and I just wasn't up for it. So left that to focus more on this kind of thing. But then that focus is hard to do when she's two now and I think I've probably had maybe one or two nights ever where I've only been woken once. We're nursing and all of these kinds of things that don't really fit too well with going out to a nine-to-five job We are getting to the point now where I can go to do home visits and things like that. But there was a period of time during lockdowns and all the other things where all of the support network that I had in terms of assistance 
with my daughter, my partner still had to go to his physical workplace. So all of those things were suddenly gone, essentially. And I had to make some projects to feel like an actual person instead of an emotional garbage bin and milk bar. Yeah. As much as, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't all doom and gloom, but I wanted to be using my brain and, and serving others in a way that was also serving myself. And one of those things that I love to do is write. So there and started the project for the book. That's magical. Oh, so many things to unpack there. I would love to probably start with, it it sounds like I love the fact that you researched it so heavily. Um, You know, Mika and I obviously come from a research background and I think it's really interesting because Mika took a very similar um, tact as you and she was all into all of those books that you listed. She had all of those. I was a, a year ahead of her in terms of my pregnancy and I don't, I don't know what it was, but oh, I think I was just so preoccupied with the pregnancy part that I gave no thought to what happened afterwards. And I think I was definitely in the other boat where I walked into motherhood and I was like, oh, you know, my intuition will just kind of kick in and I'll know what's happening and blah, 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 blah. And I entrusted the hospital and the classes that I did and the processes that they had. And I was like, well, I've ticked all the boxes, so I should be good to go, right? And boy, oh boy, was that a... (laughs) Was that a steep learning curve? And so... Isn't that reflective of the myths of motherhood all around us? 100%. Everybody else is doing this, so I'll be fine too. Yeah. I'm healthy. I've got support. Yeah. I've got a brain. I can figure this out. Yeah, surely it can't be that hard. And that's what I went in with and it was just, it was catastrophic. And so I, I feel like Mika and I kind of, uh, fulfill both sides of that coin when it comes to our postpartum work. She's like, this is all the resources I had. And she comes from the same kind of vein as you, mm. where it's like, I enjoyed this bubble because I was so prepared and just so ready for it. Whereas I was like, I don't want anyone to experience what I experienced. And that is why I'm doing the work that that I'm doing. But I think it, there is an element there of... We can do all the preparation in the world, but if I'd had a really horrific birth experience, would that have all gone out the window? Right. You know, I am one of the 8% of women who was able to access continuity of midwifery care, and I know that's a big focus in the maternal health landscape in Mm. Australia at the moment, particularly with the release of the birth time documentary. Yeah. That took research as well to come to that conclusion that that was the service provider for me and if I was eligible for that service and all of those sorts of things and to access that service I had to really truly believe in my body and my body's capacity to birth because the publicly funded midwifery group practice in our area is not able to utilize any form of pain relief therapy Wow. Um, other than water you know there's no gas no 
nothing. So it's you can choose continuity of care with no pain relief or you can choose hospital non-continuity but have access to pain relief. So if there'd been an emergency, I could have been transferred, but I already had to come to the belief that my body could do it. And once I'd made that decision, yeah, we still made all our birth plans and everything else, but it was as if like, all right, I've had to work so hard on preparing for this early on in my pregnancy to mm-hmm. to start this process that now it's just a, yeah, of course I can do it. What's the issue? And then I could focus again to the postpartum care. And I think because of the having an insight into the health system for a start and always having a bit of a critical and cynical eye on things, having worked not in a maternity hospital but inside a hospital system and also having a background in years of meditation and yoga that I felt that I could could go down that path. Mm. I think I'm I'm actually I'm actually quite sad Mika's not here with us because she I know she would absolutely echo all of those comments. She was also part of that eight percent, um, with her first and her second now, where she's been able to access that continuity of care and she's just absolutely sworn by it. Um, to the point where I know for her second she said she was teamed up with two midwives and she really wanted the primary one who was with her for the first birth. And she's like, she's she's having a week off next week. I better have this baby beforehand. And uh, <laughs> she did. She did. And I just think it's lovely. Like I, I just kind of feel like, you know, your body knows and she was talking me through like her birth and everything. And our births were chalk and cheese, but, yeah, she she said as well how she just had to internalise everything and she just was like, I really just had to trust my body. I knew that it could do this. I'm built for this, you know, without saying like, you know, I am woman type thing, like, you know, being a bit cheesy. But really she was just like, this is what we're built for and I just really had to like get in the zone and – she had an amazing um, birth experience as well. So, yeah, I think it's interesting. And just touching on that birth time documentary, we went and saw it together. I don't know about you, Anna, but I was all tears within 30 seconds. Like that movie mm-hmm. just it's so emotional, isn't got it? me <laughs> real good. <laughs> yeah, it's really wonderful if you haven't been able to see it yet to make it your mission and um, – I just read yesterday that they're teaming up with the Australian College of Midwives to do something collectively with that vision, which is going to be really incredible. Yeah. It, well, you just kind of... If they could get Rand's Cog on board as well, oh, the world would change. I know. And, to, I mean, as someone who is kind of, you know, standing back, I'm not a midwife, I'm not in the hospital system, but you kind of look at it and go, this seems like a basic thing. Like we're already doing it. Like 8% of the population already has access to this. So what do we need for more women to get on board? I think what we need is for institutions to step back and they don't want to relinquish their power until yes. there is the collective push from mothers. And that is exactly you know, no it, one's going to come in and say, oh, here, doll, I changed this for you. Like we've got to actually do it ourselves. Yeah. And to be able to do that, we have to be okay. And 
we have to be okay within our lives so that we have scope to then take action on something that's outside of just us getting through the day. And mother's work is so devalued that a lot of us are not okay to be able to get to that point. So a lot of my work in the last year has actually shifted to helping people realise that they are actually okay and that it's the way that society is structured that's making them feel broken rather than them actually being faulty and defective. 100%. And, you know, it's everything we speak to as well in terms of it's just about education and understanding your options. And I, you know, the amount of times that I've spoken to pregnant mamas and they've said, oh, well, you know, my midwife or my OB said this, that and the other. And I'm like, well, do you know that you actually have other options outside of that? And they're like, oh, no, I didn't, like, I just took what they said as gospel. And it's just alarming because I kind of feel like no wonder there's so much birth trauma. No wonder um, these women are coming out of, you know, hospitals going, hold on a minute, what the hell just happened then? And no one's Mm. there to help them process it either or very, very little are getting the opportunity to process it correctly as well. I was actually um, talking with somebody this week and I said, I think doulas need to be allowed to come to the antenatal appointments with Mm. women so that we can actually go, okay, this that you're offering can we talk through the pros and cons? You know, I was speaking with someone this week who was given a um, like a urine sample test by the private obstetrician, not even 30 weeks yet, low, t- low 20s, maybe 22, 23 weeks, just said, can you do this for me? Came back, handed it over, and the next day got a call saying that she was group B strep positive so she'd have to be on IV antibiotics for the birth. This is like... 17, 18 weeks off the due date and no talk about what the test was for, what the pros and cons of that are, like whether antibiotics might be indicated in her situation or not, how likely is group B strep actually to transfer to the baby in her situation, all of these things. But they've just told her 22, 23 weeks that she'll have to be on IV antibiotics. Like, well... Really? I'm not a birth doula, but I do consider myself quite well-read in this area and well-resourced, and it alarms me that women are not being armed with the information to make their own choices. Mm. It's interesting. I was talking with Dr Nicole Hyatt from uh, COPE the other week, and we were talking about how you know, the options are so limited with patients because it's almost like they've got a checkbox and it's like, this is just what we do because we don't want to have any responsibility or liability or anything like that. And this is just how we're going to do it. And I just keep, I keep hearing the same stories about that. It's like, nope, induction is easier. Oh, you know, we could see um, this, this could go pear shaped. So we'll just like, let's just do an induction. It's like, well, really? Is that really necessary? Mm. Or do we want to just actually start trusting our bodies that we will, you know, go into labour? Like, um, I forget where I read it, but 
I think it's in France, they don't actually give you the due date as 40 weeks. It's 42 weeks <laughs> because yeah, okay. they kept having because all of these women freaking out about, oh, my God, I'm going to get, I'm at, you know, I'm coming up to 40 weeks and we all know that stress and anxiety they're is saying, like the opposite to oxytocin. They're giving the date as that you can expect to have had your baby by this time, most yeah. likely. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same as in the UK, the full-term gestation is 37 to 43 weeks, whereas in Australia it's 37 to 42 weeks. Yeah. But I have I have clients who are like, 40-week oh, mark and, oh, my God, I haven't mm. had my baby. And it's like, okay, the percentage of children who actually are born on that day, like five percent or less. Um, yeah, so I don't worry. Out, actually, <laughs> I was freaking out because my being a public midwife home birth rather than a private midwife home birth, I could only birth with this group practice if I was in established labor labor by forty one and six, and my daughter was born at 41 and 3 and I was starting to get really nervous. Wow. Took until I had a big old cry. I got up, the full moon was setting over a hill and I could see it from our lounge room window and I was sitting there and I was watching the moon and just having this big cry of like, she's never going to come. It's all awful. I can't deal with going to the hospital. They're going to want to induce me. And then when I got to a place of you know what, whatever comes, I can deal with it. Yeah. That's the day I went to labour, that midday that day. Yeah. Midwife came in the morning, spoke with me. We made some extra rules about what I would and wouldn't accept if that happened. Yeah. And, yeah, that day I went into labour. Surrender. I love it. Yes, surrender. That is exactly, exactly right. So did you want to – we've spoken about a few of our – you know, the top four books that you were reading. Um, they are definitely in my library as well. I love all of those books. So what's in your book? Tell us, tell the listeners about what you've written about. Yeah, I would love to. So essentially I got to a point, you know, I had this beautiful baby bliss bubble at the start when she was about four months old. You know, all the things that happened with sleep at four months. Yeah. I was dealing with actually a milk oversupply rather than undersupply. Um, she wouldn't sleep unless she was on me and she pretty much still doesn't, but that's a different story. There were a lot of factors that were starting to play out and I found myself experiencing some postnatal anxiety on reflection. I, I realised that that's really what it was and I was quite quick onto it. I engaged a counsellor and all that sort of stuff. But I just really started noticing from that point forward even more the things that you look around and you go like, am I crazy or is is this situation crazy? Mm-hmm. And I started sort of noting them down and eventually I wrote some blogs about them and things like that and then she was probably, she was over a year old, maybe close to a year and a half old and I was standing in the bookshelf, in the bookstore and looking at the parents and children's section and there was a million books on birth and weaning and toilet training and discipline and a few on becoming a dad and there was nothing that said 
this is what it's like to be a mother. And yes, there are a few that you can source online, but there was nothing in the mainstream that was saying this is actually how it feels between the really dizzying highs of, you know, baby giggle sounds where you just melt and the depths of pacing the hallway at 3 a.m., crying and going down a Dr. Google rabbit hole and ending up at like some sleep training website. You know, there's nothing on the in-between that is really allowed to be talked about. And I saw that again and again, like in my social media feed where it would be either this like perfect white linen shirted homesteading family or (laughs) it would be like mum's got her head in her hands and has only eaten toast crust for days and nothing in between. And I went home and I made this big long list of all the different ways that I and mothers that I was speaking with and following and all that sort of stuff were feeling. And it was, you know, the judgment and the shame and the rage and all of these things. And I made lists and lists and lists and I played around with it for a few days and tried to make some sense of it in different categories and whatever. And I ended up landing on 10 things that sort of encapsulated a lot of the others. And I'd already decided by this stage that a book was something that had to happen because I could either keep writing blog posts and have them end up further and further down the depths of the internet where no one ever finds them and sees them or I could start on this book thing. And the book was great because it felt something really legitimate to do Mm -hmm. in the evenings when I wanted to get when my partner got home and we didn't have the childcare or anything and I just wanted to throw my child at him and be like, I can't deal anymore. It felt like a really valid reason to go and lock myself away for an hour or two, which was awesome. So I did that and I came, yeah, had my 10 categories and engaged a mentor. Carly Marie was my book writing mentor and I, yeah, just started working my way through them. So I never, on these interviews, I usually struggle to get all 10, but we'll see how we go today. (laughs) So it was things like guilt uncertainty, feeling invisible, loneliness, fear, anger, overwhelm, grief, boredom, and even contentment. Contentment's not really allowed to be talked about, like satisfaction if you're actually satisfied by motherhood or within your motherhood. Can you actually talk about that when every other mother at playgroup is like crying about how hard their life is or raging about something? Can you actually say, Actually, I'm feeling really fulfilled. Yeah. So, yeah, all of these things that I just wanted to really dive into. So I went into looking at data but also about collecting conversations with with friends um, and just noting down little things that people said to me. And not everything made it into the book. I have written and rewritten every chapter five times, I reckon. I probably edited it at least 10 times after that. Honestly, I wouldn't care if I never read it again, but I want everybody <laughs> else to read it. And that's what, that's some of the feedback that I'm getting is like, oh, I'm only up to about chapter four, but I'm definitely getting some more copies. My sister needs to read this. My cousin needs to read this. Every parent needs to read this. I'm giving it. I skipped ahead to the chapter on anger and it's what I really needed. I've given it to my partner to read too so he understands what I'm going through. 
and I was like, I've just reached that point of going that toil was worth it. Yeah, absolutely. God, it's all- a long time to write and to pour money into something without, you know, stay up till midnight editing stuff yeah. without any of the hit of social media likes or anything like that. It yeah. feels like a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it's or, only seven months, but it feels like a really long time. Oh, wow. That's a great – I mean, I've never written a book. The, the only thing I've written is a is a thesis, but <laughs> that's – I think a book is no one wants to read a thesis ever. So <laughs> you're the you're – But the, you also understand what I mean, that you never want to see it again. Oh, absolutely. When you're like, I've edited these and cut everything and I feel like I could have written five theses um, with all the kind of – stuff that you move around and you everything like that. But you like, probably I wrote never... five theses worth of, worth of words. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I never want to see this again. <laughs> but seven months, I mean, I think that's a remarkably quick, um, that's a quick turnaround. I, I, I would, I would have thought, but, uh, but having said that though, if it's in you, I feel like, you know, these are all amazing topics that I think need more airplay. I definitely myself probably needed something during those newborn days because you you legitimately go through every single one of those emotions. You could go through them all in one day. Every day. Um, every hour. Yeah. And and yeah, you're and abs- the, the trouble is that they're all jumbled in together. Yes. And but there are social forces that influence all of those things as well. And unless you can see how some of the outside the things outside of you are affecting the feelings inside of you, there is a tendency to self-police and that's where the real danger is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I think on that comment where one of your readers was saying that she's given the book to her partner to read, I think that's probably one of the most powerful things and something that resonates with me a lot because you, as the mother you're at home typically by yourself I mean your partner eventually goes back to work (laughs) pre-COVID you know Um, Mm. and you're at home with all of these thoughts and a small little child who can't speak to you yet you have no idea what's going on it's this whole new role and then you try like I tried many times to kind of convey the thoughts and feelings that I had but I'm like you just don't get it because I feel like until you're in it and you experience Mm. it 24 7 you're just not like yeah it's I think it's a really hard thing to convey to your partner as well I mean my partner was very very supportive um during the entire newborn period and still is but yeah I think Something like handing over a book and saying, please read this chapter. This is exactly how I feel would be an amazing thing to have. Do you think given all the rewrites and editing, things like that, do you think there's going to be a a sequel? Well, I can already see that there's been such a shift and change in my dynamics since I wrote certain chapters. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if it'll be this exact theme exactly, but I, I don't think that it will be the only the only book that I ever write was it a cathartic process for you like did you feel like you were yes always processing no. it okay I was definitely processing stuff but catharsis kind of 
sounds to me like you have a bit, have a big cry and then you feel better. Yeah. Okay. Whereas this is like the chapter that I was writing on anger that week was the most rageful I'd ever been okay. to that point. It really brought up whatever was there to bring up for sure. Yeah. And yes, it has definitely been a self-therapeutic and processing thing. And probably there are bits that I wrote that were much more, I'm going to say aggressive or pointed okay. or directed yeah. that were edited out okay. later yeah. um, because they'd served their purpose. Yeah. 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 They'd done, and actually I'd got to six or 7,000 words on something that I'd started writing that I thought was the start of the book and then realised that those stories that I'd written about had actually served their purpose. They were just for me to process my experience and then I could start writing the book that was going to be read by other people. That's really beautiful because I feel like that's similar to um, our training with the newborn mother's with Julia Jones, where we had to go back and write through our birth story and and process mm. that and and you know work through all you know quote unquote those demons before we kind of put ourselves into yeah. other people's homes, which and I did feel almost a bit um broady in those situations because I was like, oh, I don't really have any things to work through here. <laughs> Well, okay, so going back to that, so you did all of this research whilst you were pregnant. Was there anything where you kind of felt like you'd missed a topic or you thought, oh, God, or something happened where you're like, oh, wow, I'm, I know nothing about that. I'm kind of not really armed with information because it sounds like, you know, you sound like the poster child for postpartum, Anna. <laughs> this is everything that people need to do. <laughs> I, know. I know. I would invest in getting a cleaner next time so that I didn't feel bad watching my mum and other people do that side of things. Yeah. But in terms of the actual baby care and the whatever else, not really. Not really. Not really. And you wouldn't um, do anything different the next time around? There'd be a whole different lot of prep to be adding a second child to a family rather than a first child. What probably surprised me was it around that first, that four-month mark because I had done so much in the lead-up to the fourth trimester bit and I did, you know, I tried everything. I did the placenta encapsulation and the belly binding and the steaming and the, I did, tried everything. It was mm-hmm. really great also to feel like I was trying new things for myself at the Mm -hmm. same time as for the baby was good um but yeah I really hadn't thought of what the time after that newborn period would be like so much I was so focused on getting through it Mm -hmm. essentially Mm -hmm. as well as possible and then yeah so we got to about four months and I had, as I said earlier, I had the oversupply. I had a baby that I couldn't drive for more than six minutes without stopping. So 12 minutes was my radius from home that I could stop six minutes. And it takes four minutes to get to, like we live just out of town, so it takes four minutes to get to the nearest anything Mm -hmm. before you then start getting closer into civilization. 
So that was all compounding around the time that being an ecologically and environmentally aware person, this was about the same time that global climate strikes were happening, the student-led climate strikes, and that summer was the bushfires Mm -hmm. and then after that Black Lives Matter happened and COVID happened and by the time my daughter was a year, a year and a half old, all of those things had happened in my first, yeah, year and a half of motherhood. Mm. So I probably didn't expect how fearful and anxious I would become during that period and how extended the need for backup is beyond that newborn period. Yeah. You know, I decided around that four-month mark that I actually was never going to function again unless we co-slept mm-hmm. and we'd already been doing that sort of half the night but I just we just moved the cot out altogether and it became a really wonderful storage box. Yep. And... Yeah, oh, that was the other thing that surprised me. Um, so we decided to use a baby-led weaning approach to introducing solids and she really didn't take in any solid food that you could count as nutritional value until she was probably nine months old. Mm-hmm. But my kids started walking at eight and a half months. Yeah. So she was really, really active and not sleeping heaps and I was her only source of nutrition still and I was really tired, Yeah, really tired. So I ended up having, I don't know whether this is related or not, but I have had some gut health issues and kind of nutritional deficiencies and things mm-hmm. that I was taking a really good quality prenatal and postnatal breastfeeding multivitamin Mm -hmm. through a naturopath. But I think at that point, while I was in survival mode, the thought didn't click of you need an appointment to get extra help right now. Yeah. And then my body sort of started reacting systemically, inflammation-wise, reacting to different foods that it otherwise had no problem to. So, yeah, then I ended up having to go through more of a, like, uh, an elimination style process okay. and quite a strict dietary regimen for the last six months to fix that up. So I don't know whether these things are related or not. That's something that can happen, isn't it, that it's these things can be triggered during the postpartum period. Yeah. Need a, a gut health reset. If that's been an issue for you previously, it often spikes up after childbirth Mm, mm. so yeah it just happened around that time for me I'll be aware of it if there is a next time Mm, gosh that that would have been really hard because yeah having such an active toddler and as you said being like the lion's share of the nutritional value that would have been tricky but it was also tricky actually because i just gotten to the point where we were able to drive a little bit in the car and there were um, some other circles that I wanted to go to for me and my own mental health. Yeah. But the criteria was that you couldn't 
take that they were available to mothers until their kids were walking so that you didn't have to like chase them around the room. So because my daughter started walking four months before babies normally start walking and there was no crash, I couldn't oh. access that. Oh, that's disappointing. So I was, <laughs> it was okay because I had all this, you know, I had put in place support and I'd met other people and whatever. Yeah. But it was just that I couldn't go to circle and that was something that I was looking forward to. I was yeah. like, ah, oh, we made it. And then rolled for two weeks and then started walking and I was like, ah, oh, we didn't make it. Damn. <laughs> Stop walking, child. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I suppose when we talk these things through, everybody has their own yeah. challenging times yeah absolutely well look I'm mindful of time so I'm going to do a few rapid fire questions um, at the end what would be your number one tip or what is your number one tip to your clients you know as probably first time mums for the fourth trimester the snippet that I usually give is that matrescence is the transition to motherhood just like adolescence is the transition to adulthood and I mentioned how the brain declutters to make space to learn the baby, but you have to give yourself time to learn the baby and learn your new self. So if you are the baby's life support machine during that time, you need to be plugged into the electricity socket and everyone around you needs to be that socket and that source mm-hmm. because if the power source gets cut off, the life support machine's not working. So it's probably a combination of those two things together. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> That's probably a nicer way of my version, which is there is a reason why the oxygen masks, when they come down, the people tell you, put yeah. yours on first, not your child's. It sounds harsh, but if you're dead, no one's helping anyone else. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Just a different analogy. Just, yeah. Your, yours is probably less aggressive than mine. But <laughs> <laughs> and have the fear of the plane crashing at the same time. Well, yes. That, <laughs> Although it. that is symbolic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. What was your go-to um, postpartum meal that you were like, I'm having a rough day if I have X, oh, gosh, it's like a big warm hug and I'm going to love it. I made this special porridge every morning that had oodles of different um, grains and seeds and I would mix some of the black sesame paste oh, yeah. from Heng U's cookbook and also ghee through that yeah. and it was creamy and carby and fatty and sweet and delicious was great oh I love it I'm a massive porridge fan and um I just go bananas with like all the stuff on it and people my husband's very he's very basic he's like it just needs to be porridge and a little bit of honey or maple syrup and I'm just like oh god that's boring and so wasted (laughs) porridge is just the vehicle for like everything else right and if you want to blend some banana in with it yeah. or pour some honey on top, yeah. you know, the works. Yeah, my go-to. really wonderful. My go-to is the uh, grilled banana or grilled pear, like mm. that's been in coconut oil, and then goji berries, chia, and I'm a sucker for 
peanut butter on top as well, which apparently yeah. is a huge faux pas for some people, but I'm like, it's okay. I'll eat it. No, they're all things that sound great. <laughs> when I finish this diet protocol, hit me up with some of that. <laughs> and our last question that we always ask our guests, um, and some people think it's a little bit left of centre, but we love asking it. Um, what is on your bedside table? Currently there's a book that's been sitting there for months and months that I really haven't picked up while I've been writing my own book. Yep. It's called Finding Chica by Mitch album okay yeah I believe it's this is how long it is since I started reading it but I believe his family adopted a child from he's American and they adopted this child from either Africa or Asia who required some kind of surgery I think it was possibly like cleft palate surgery right and yeah, brought this baby into their home and it's their story with her. And I think she ends up passing away and oh. it's his reflections on that he feels that she comes and visits him at his desk and the conversations that they have. And oh, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, really nice. I'll uh, get to it yeah, someday. Yes, it's like that never ending list. You know, you're like, okay, I'll just add that to my list. Thanks, guys. <laughs> It probably needs to live in the lounge room, actually. I might actually read a page here or there then. Yes, in eye, eye shot. That's what I have mm. I have tended to do, although I'm now starting to clutter my lounge room with all the things and yeah. <laughs> amongst all the toys too. and everything. Look, Anna, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time. Um, and for all the listeners, where can they find you on socials and your website? Yeah, cool. So on Instagram, I'm at Anna Cusack Postpartum and on Facebook, if you just put facebook.com slash Anna Cusack Postpartum, it'll come up. I have a website, www.annacusack.com.au. And if you put a forward slash book on the end, that will give you all of the links to where you can find my book on the different retailers and also through purchasing directly through me. And you'll also find me on the Motherhood Made Magic podcast, which I host every week. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Bye. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.